0: We are in the book of Joshua this morning, Joshua chapter 2. Philip Yancey wrote a book back in the 90s called What's So Amazing About Grace that I highly recommend. He tells a story in there about a friend of his who was a social worker in Chicago. And this guy had a, a client who was a young woman who was involved in prostitution. She was also uh, profoundly addicted to cocaine. And her life was so miserable. I mean, she was as close as you can be to being in hell and still be alive. Um, and he was trying his best to help her out of this miserable existence. And finally, one day he said, as may or may not be proper, but I wish you would come to my church. You need the love of God. You need a church family. You need people who will support you and and, and encourage you and strengthen you. And uh, if not my church, then go to another church. And her exact words were, church, why would I go there? Those people would only make me feel worse than I already do. And the irony, of course, is that when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, people like that woman were the people most likely to be drawn to Jesus. They were the ones most, uh, most in love with him. They were the ones who, who you know, brought out the, the most expensive bottle of perfume they had and poured it over his head or, or wept over his feet and dried his feet with their tears. They were the ones who followed him even to the cross. So how awful it is to think that they were drawn to Jesus 2,000 years ago and today they won't get within a mile of a church building. So if you want to know why we say that the American church needs revival, that's why. It's, you can name all kinds of outward signs. You can drive back down the street and go, okay, that used to be a church and it's not anymore and that makes you sad. But what's really sad is the very people who are most drawn to Jesus are repelled by us. So we need to change. What exactly do we need to do differently? That's what I want to talk about today. We started last week in this series on Joshua, and we said that the book of Joshua was sort of a roadmap to abundant life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundant. And so we look at the the book of Joshua as the people of God who were called to go across the Jordan and claim the promised land. This is the life God wanted them to have. All they had to do was obey him. Their parents had failed because they didn't have enough faith because they wouldn't obey. This generation did it. So we read Joshua and we say, okay, what did they have? What did they need to get that life that God wants us to have? Because we're called to the Sabbath rest of God, to the promised land of God. And so we, last week we covered verse, chapters 1 through 5, and we were looking at all the things God did to prepare his people for battle because they were going to have to fight to claim their inheritance and next week, you'll hear about the, the Battle of Jericho. And that's a fun story. That's an exciting story. But this week, we're going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to cover something we didn't look at in chapter 2. And that is the story of a woman named Rahab. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, you may be old enough to remember the movie Pretty Woman with uh, Julia Roberts. That's what made her a superstar back, I think, in the 90s. Um, I won't ask you if you've seen it because I don't want anybody to lie in church. But, uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at movies with uh, that subject matter because it's interesting how movies try to make it look not nearly as bad as it is. You can go back a generation before that, and there's Butterfield 8 with Liz Taylor. So it's always been that way. Religion does the same thing with the story of Rahab. So in Jesus' own time, there was a historian named Josephus. We still read his works today. And when he talks about Rahab, he refers to her as an innkeeper, Which is an interesting way to describe what Rahab did. Uh, the Bible is very clear about what she did, and it was not, she was not the manager of a Motel 6, okay? So, uh, there's another, uh, rabbinic tradition. So later on, after Jesus, the rabbis had all these traditions that they would, you know, stories they would tell. And one of the traditions they had was that Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women in history. I don't know who the other three were. Uh, or how they decided this, but I, I really seriously doubt that was accurate. So the name Rahab is probably not her given name because it's a it's an Israelite word, a Hebrew word that just means large. Um, it's it's used <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. It's used three other times in the Old Testament, not referring to her, but it's used as an insult against other nations. Rahab. Uh, is the, is a name that for kind of a mythical sea monster. So big bloated sea lizard. So you get called this as a young woman. It's not a compliment. It's not something nice. You can met, you can bet that Rahab lived a very, very miserable life. Think about it. She didn't choose this life. No little girl grows up wanting to go into that line of work. This is something that she did because she needed it to survive. Uh, so miserable life. No hope that it, that's going to change. And then one day, these two strangers show up on her doorstep. Now, she knew exactly who they were because for the last 40 years, the people of that land had been saying, Oh, we heard about what God did, the God of Israel did to the kingdom of Egypt. We, we've heard about how he's been bringing them this direction all these years. And he's been feeding them with bread, literally bread that falls down out of heaven. He's been, he's been guiding them with miracles and water from rock and all kinds of stuff. And we just heard how they crossed the Jordan on dry land. We're in big trouble. And so she saw, sees these two spies and she knows, okay, I have a choice to make here. Now, on the one hand, she could say, I can turn my whole life around I can go from being at the bottom of my society, because you can bet everybody in Jericho looked down on Rahab. I can turn that around. I can be a hero. I can, I can tell these guys, I got you covered. Go to bed. They'll Once they're sound asleep, I can go out and, and get the authorities and turn them in, and everybody will think I'm great. But she chooses not to do that. Instead, she says, you hide under these stalks of flax that I've had drying out on my roof. And when the soldiers come, she tells the soldiers, hey, you just missed them. Uh, you can, if you head that way, you, you can, might be able to catch them. And why does she do this? Why would, why would Rahab choose to be a traitor to her people instead of a national hero? Well, she explains it starting in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. and Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said, yeah, we'll protect you. We'll... All you need to do is get everybody you want saved inside the, the, the four walls of your house. Her house was built onto the wall itself. And so if you'll just dangle a scarlet cord out the outward facing wall, out, outward facing window, when we invade, we will protect everyone inside that house. Anybody who goes outside, we can't be accountable for their lives. And so she did. She put everybody she knew, every, all of her family inside that house, and they were spared. Now, why did she do this? She was motivated by faith. She said, I want to do this because your God is God. I could turn you in, and yeah, I'd have a short-term reward, but the truth is, if I turn you in, your God is still God, and he's still going to get done what he wants to get done. That means me and all my people are dead. I'm going to choose to believe in your God and not in our people. I'm going to choose to believe in your God and not the multiplicity of pagan gods that I've been raised with. I'm going to believe in your God because your God is God. This was what we would call a conversion. And the interesting thing is, scholars believe that the reason Rahab's story is told in such detail in Joshua is because she represents hundreds, maybe even thousands of others in the land of Canaan who when the Israelites invaded, they didn't fight back and they didn't run away. They went to the Israelites and said, we want to join you because we believe in your God. Because that's what God predicted would happen, and it's happening right here in Rahab. Now, what happened to Rahab after that? Well, we know that she became part of the nation of Israel. And we can sort of chuckle to ourselves when we think of very prim and proper Israelite women having to adjust to this big, loud, rough woman in their midst. But she married a good Israelite boy, and they had babies. and, And according to one of the genealogies in the Old Testament, one of her babies was named Boaz. Now, Scholars will say that the genealogies in the Old Testament are sometimes, they call it telescoped, where they skip generations and they only hit the high points. So maybe Boaz wasn't Rahab's absolute son. Maybe he was her grandson or great-grandson. But either way, when you read the book of Ruth, and if you've never read Ruth, read it. It takes 15 minutes. It's a good story. But when you see this wealthy landowner named Boaz who takes pity upon and actually falls in love with this foreign woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law, you know why because of who he was descended from. But that's not even the end of the story. When you get to the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned three separate times. The first one in the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew 1. The New Testament begins with a genealogy, everybody's favorite thing in the Bible, right? And, and we, we see these genealogies, and we just like, okay, I'll skip over that and get to the action. But if you skip over Matthew 1, you've skipped over something very significant. There are four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Now, this is interesting because in that world, you didn't list women in your genealogy. Nobody cared who your mom was. They just cared who your dad was unless there was a woman in your genealogy who you were especially proud of. If you were descended from a princess, right, you would put her name in there. The four women who are mentioned in Jesus' name are not royalty. They're not wealthy. They're not prominent. They all have a hint of scandal about them. And Rahab is one of them. Rahab is one. And then when you get to Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is one of the great chapters in the New Testament. I'm planning to do a, a series on Hebrews 11 next year. And it's, it's all about the great men and women of faith through the Old Testament. Rahab's mentioned there too. She's one of the heroes. And then in James chapter 2 is the third time she's mentioned. In James 2, James is talking about faith without works is dead. You can't just say, I believe, if it doesn't change your life. And he gives two examples. And the two examples he gives are Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, right? The, the whole race comes from him, and Rahab. So you've got the exalted father, and you've got a pagan prostitute. These two in the same breath, because that's how God is. Isn't it interesting God didn't say to Rahab, okay, you can come in if you want to. If, you, if you're so desperate to be saved, I'll accept you, but, but keep quiet. I don't want anybody to know you're in my family. Side note, we all have those people in our family, don't we, right? I don't, I don't really want people to know you're related to me. But God puts her front and center. God puts her on display. God says, she's mine. Now, we still serve the same God. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the God that's mentioned in the Bible, he's the same God we're still serving today. He hasn't changed and he still changes lives. So why isn't it happening here? Why aren't we seeing in churches like ours, Women and men like Rahab, not necessarily in the same lifestyle as Rahab, but people who think their life is worthless. People who think there's nothing in me that anybody would want. People who think there is no hope for me. How come we're not seeing those people delivered, transformed, saved more often? Because we should be. Because they were in Jesus' time, because they were. And when the the people of Israel got across the Jordan River, why isn't it happening here? I think there are two things we see in the life of Rahab that we need to see in our church. And the first one is power. Interestingly, I didn't even think about this until now, the power at our church was out yesterday. Uh, Robert uh, got a call from uh, Ken. And Ken told him, hey, the power's out and it's supposed to not be on until six. And we're like, oh no, what do we do? Well, I'm not talking about that kind of power. I mean the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes people's lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who does miracles. Why don't we see the Holy Spirit working in churches today? Back in the 19th century, there was this English reformer named Samuel Took, T-E-W-K, he was a Christian man, and he had a heart for people who were struggling with mental illness. Back in those days, people who were mentally ill, especially if you could tell they were ill mentally, they were really mistreated. They were thrown into asylums where they were often chained to the wall or, or locked in solitary confinement, sometimes even beaten. Samuel Tuke, a Christian man, he said, there's got to be a better way. So he came up with this different kind of treatment plan. When you read about it, it sounds like it was sort of a finishing school for the mentally ill, where you would learn how to dress properly and how to behave yourself at a party and how to use correct grammar and, and, and make good decisions. And, and so you, you can just imagine these people, if they, if they suddenly came under Dr. Tuke's care, their life got better. And their family said, hey, you look so much better and you sound so much better and you seem so much better. But just because you can tie a bow tie and extend your pinky finger when you're drinking your cup of tea, it doesn't mean anything's really changed inside. It didn't cure your schizophrenia. It didn't cure your bipolar. It didn't cure your your whatever you're struggling with. And that's what I'm afraid is happening in a lot of churches today. That we're we're doing our best to train people to act a certain way, but we're not really changing anybody's life. And I fear that we'll get, we'll stand before the Lord someday and say, yeah, I mean, good job teaching people to follow the rules, but you never really changed people. Let that not be said of us. Remember, Rahab was drawn to God, not because he heard that the Israelites were really nice people, Not because she heard that they were a fun group to hang out with, but because she heard about God's power. She heard about the things he'd done in Egypt and in the wilderness. Years ago, I read the book uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Again, another book I highly recommend. And he said something there I've never forgotten. He says, you can tell that God is doing something because it's always God-sized. God doesn't do little things. He does big things. When's the last time something God-sized happened in your life? or in this church, or in any other church in this community. We need to pray. We need to pray that people would see that Christ is Lord, that they would see us, they would see the way we live, they would come to church on a Sunday morning, and they'd say, your God is God. And that doesn't happen by us trying really hard. That happens because the Holy Spirit just pours out His power on us, and that only happens if you and I pray. So let me challenge you to do that, to pray Every Sunday morning, at least, Lord, make something happen today that can't be explained in human terms. Lord, empower the preaching of your word. Empower the the singing of your praise. Empower the giving of tithes and offerings. Empower our fellowship. Make something happen that changes somebody's life today. But don't just quit with Sunday because we need God's power throughout the week. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're the church Monday through Saturday too. Yeah, not just Sunday mornings. We need God's power. To live the life that He's called us to live, we need God's power to see prayers answered in a miraculous way. We need God's power to see lives changed and souls saved. Man, if you're getting a little a little uncomfortable with this talk of power, just understand something. Yeah, there are churches out there that 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 preach a kind of uh, you tell God what to do and He does it. That is not biblical. Yes, I agree with that. And you may have heard ideas about, well, if you pray too much about the Holy Spirit, you'll turn into a holy roller. Well, guess what? You know, if you go too far, it's a lot easier to put out a fire than it is to wake the dead. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about getting too excited about the Holy Spirit. You're going to be okay if the Holy Spirit takes charge. You are going to be all right. Don't be nervous. Yeah, some things will change, but they needed to be changed. There's a second thing we need, and that's grace. Let's not forget about grace. You know, I got to thinking about it. Why is Rahab featured so prominently in Scripture? She's got a whole chapter of Joshua, and then she's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And yeah, what she did was quite heroic. But really, when you think about it, it didn't really change anything. Again, if, if she would have turned those two guys in, it would have been bad for them, but it wouldn't have stopped. The work of God, the people of God still would have claimed the land. So, why why does God focus so much attention on her? And I think the answer is for the same reason he focuses so much attention on the Apostle Paul. Very different person. His sins were very different. They were more religiously motivated. He was more self righteous and she was more self loathing. But both of them were examples of people that you'd look at and go, oh man, no, that, that could never happen. And God says, look what I can do. Rahab was his trophy of grace. I want you to think about something. Think about the people in your life that you look at and you think, boy, there's no hope for them. Just think about the glory that God gets when they come to know Christ. And we 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 underestimate God's power to save. Oh yeah, we we think, okay, well, this could happen because this person, you know, he was raised in a Christian home. We just need to get him to pray the prayer and and everything's fine. And, and yeah, absolutely, that's a that's something to praise God for too. But think about the glory that God gets when someone who is at the bottom of life's totem pole turns their life around through the power of God, through the grace of God. God loves doing that. Grace is something that, you know, it's one of those things that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. If all we've got is rules, I got news for you. I've done a little reading. The rules of the other religions aren't all that different. If all we got is rules, we're not that different. Fortunately, we do have something different. We have a risen Christ and we have grace. And what is grace? Grace is that idea that you can't do it, God does it. Again, God doesn't highlight Rahab because of anything she did. It's because of what he did in her life. Now, the world has a counterfeit version of grace. It's called tolerance, And I know tolerance isn't a bad thing. Tolerance is fine. We need to tolerate one another. But tolerance essentially says, you be you. You do you. Whatever whatever that means, whatever you feel like doing or being or claiming or whatever you want, you be that. And anybody who tries to stop you or criticizes you for it, they're in the way and need to be expelled from your life. Grace is different. Let me explain. And this is kind of a funky story. It's going to shed some light on my weird mind. But um, years ago, I was visiting a hospital, visiting a church member in a hospital. And here's some, here's a little tidbit about me. I tend to get lost in hospitals. Because hospitals aren't built with a master plan. Most of the time, it's like they built one building and then, oh, we need another one. And they, they slap that one on and then another one and then another and they stack something on top. Pretty soon you've got this circuitous maze with no cheese at the end. And so it's just easy to get turned around. So here I was looking for my church member. I end up at the end of this long hallway. And there's this balcony out on the outside, and you can see through it, uh, there's a sign that says, welcome to the smoker's lounge, which is how I knew I was in the wrong place. Um, So outside that balcony, there were these, you know, probably a half dozen people in hospital gowns, and they're all smoking. And there was a sign underneath it that said, warning, no oxygen tanks allowed in the smoker's retreat. And and I was like, okay, because I knew that, because when I was a kid, there was a guy in my hometown that had oxygen in his nose and chose to smoke. And when the flame hit that pure oxygen, the the tank exploded and he was killed. And so this is the way preachers think. This is the curse of being a preacher or being related to a preacher. Everything's a sermon illustration. So I saw that and I thought, you know, that's humanity. That's humanity right there in a nutshell. Because here's these people, this half dozen people out here on this balcony, and they're slowly killing themselves, right? Not. I'm not judging. I, I know that once you start, it's hard to stop. But yeah, every smoke you take, you're slowly killing yourself. Or you could get the oxygen tank and, and quickly kill yourself, either way. But but it's it's a vision of what humanity is apart from Jesus, because apart from Jesus, that's all of us. We're all slowly killing ourselves. We're all making terrible choices day by day. Some of us are making such bad choices. We're quickly killing ourselves. But all of us are on that path to eternal destruction, eternal separation from God. Everything bad is coming our way because we're headed down the wrong path. So the world says, tolerance, Hey. You do whatever you want to. If you want to smoke out, we'll, we'll make a special place for you to go and slowly kill yourself. Or if you want, if you want an oxygen tank and, and stick it in your nose and, and take a chance on blowing yourself up, it's your life. Who am I to judge? That's the world. Then religion comes along. And you know what religion says apart from the gospel? Religion comes along and says, oh, you're going to do that? I'm going to get far away from you. I don't want to smell that. I don't want to breathe that in. I don't want it to affect me, and if you're going to smoke with an oxygen tank, I definitely want to be far from you, because when that thing goes off, I don't want to be anywhere close. See, in religion, we measure ourselves by how far away we can keep from sinners. Remember when Jesus was here, the most religious people on earth, aside from him, their whole thing was, we are clean, and we don't touch anything that could make us unclean. Jesus came along and said, I've got a different philosophy. I think we should be about making the unclean people clean. See, that's grace. Grace says, I love you in spite of the bad choices you're making. I love you so much, I can't stop being involved in your life. I'm going to invest in your life, in fact, even though I do get affected by the bad things you do, and sometimes it hurts me, but I will not leave you. I will be with you, and I'm not going to nag you every day because then I wouldn't have a chance to win you, but I'm going to do everything I can to bring you out of this life and into a life that is real life. That's grace. How sweet the sound when we realize that God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Now, when I was in fourth grade, I went to a different school than the one I'd been going to. I I didn't move. I, I grew up out in the country, and there was this little country school that I went to from K through three, and our school was so little, we had three grades in one classroom, if you can imagine And I went from there to school in town, which Yokum is a small town, but it was big enough. We had six different fourth grade classes. So I thought I'd gone to the big city. I was was really intimidated. And I remember the first week I was at that new school, I went out after lunch to, to try to get involved in a football game on the playground. There was this kid who kind of ran things. He was taller than the other kids and he was kind of loud and in charge. And he was one of the captains. His name was Scott. And Scott was choosing teams, him and another kid, and he looked at me and he said, I, I choose that kid. Now y'all need to understand something. I know I'm this big towering guy now, but when I was in fourth grade, I was so small, my brother who was four years younger than me, people thought we were twins. I'd never been picked first for anything. And, but Scott, everybody looked at him like, that kid? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I was out here yesterday. He was catching everything they threw at him. I choose him. I, I mean, it's been a long time since then, a minute or two, right? And I can still feel how I felt when he picked me. I went home and told my mom, I got picked first. And Scott and I were friends all the way through high school. Now, I say all that to say this. There are a lot of Rahabs in our community. Again, not necessarily people involved in her specific lifestyle, but people who feel like they have nothing to offer, like they have no hope. And they've never been picked first for anything. And we get the opportunity to come into their lives and say, no, you're wrong. God picked you. God chose you. He chose to die for you. He loved you enough to say, I'd rather die for you than live without you. That's how much you mean to him. Are we going to be the people who take that message to them? You can think of people in your life like this if you think hard enough, and if you can't, ask God to show them to you. People in your community, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your family. Are you going to go to them and show them that kind of grace? Are you going to pray for the power of God to fall upon you, upon our church, so that this will be the kind of place where people turn their lives around on a regular basis, where we celebrate not just baptism, but baptism that signifies a life that has been turned around completely. You know, what I, my theory is that when you get a couple of Rahabs come to know Christ, pretty soon the other ones in the community realize that's where hope is found. And that's what we want to happen.